This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The David Packman Show, The Young Turks, Radio Dispatch, Black Agenda Report, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Jimmy Dore Show. And a warning that this program and those like it do pose a risk of overdose. Please consult your doctor about how much politics is safe for you to consume. Colorado is reconsidering its decision to legalize recreational pot following the deaths of dozens due to marijuana overdoses. I, I didn't know, shocking. I didn't know this. This is insane. People are dying from marijuana overdose. Uh, it's complete chaos here, says Dr. Jack Shepard, chief of surgery at St. Luke's Medical Center in Denver. I've put five college students in body bags since breakfast, and more are arriving every minute. She, this is from this is from the day that they that they legalized it there I January first. Getting more play. I don't know. That's not getting more coverage. Uh, we are seeing cardiac arrests, uh, acquiring trimethylmurias and multiple organ failures. By next week, the death toll could be as high as two hundred, maybe three hundred. Jeez, unbelievable. Someone needs to step in and stop this madness. My God, why did we legalize marijuana? What were we thinking? <laughs> I, I'm shocked to hear this story. But um, before we start getting the, uh, the emails and the IMs and the calls telling me that I'm reading, I know what, what, I, I know what I'm reading. This is from the Daily Current. The really, really not funny onion. Yes, that site that tries to do satirical news yeah. and fails miserably at being funny and just ends up creating urban legends. Right. Yes. Um, but not everyone's as smart as maybe Michael, Sam, myself, and all the wonderful Majority Report listeners. For example, take Michael A. Pristoop, <laughs> the Annapolis police chief in Maryland. Uh, he testified before a Maryland state Senate panel on Tuesday of last week about the perils of legalizing marijuana. In researching his testimony against two bills before the Judicial Proceedings Committee, Pristoop said he had found a news article to illustrate the risks of legalization. If you're wondering what that news article is, just go back 30 seconds to the Daily Current article I just read. 37 people in Colorado, he said, had died of marijuana overdoses on the very day that the state legalized pot. (laughs) Senator Jamie B. Raskin Democrat of Montgomery, who is the sponsor of the legalization bill that was the subject of the Senate hearing, said when he said that, everyone in the room dropped their laptops. (laughs) After a quick Google search, Raskin advised the chief that the Colorado overdose story, despite the deadpan delivery from the chief of police, had been made up by the Daily Current. What, what's sort of scary, actually, is that I thought when he said, when the, the, the state senator said everyone dropped their laptops, I thought he meant everyone was like, did this guy really just say this? We're laughing. But it seems like they were like, what? We didn't see this study. <laughs> that, that's kind of nerve-wracking as well. Um, later that same day, the chief apologized for this mistake, admitting in a news release that he had been duped. <laughs> I apologize for the information I provided concerning the deaths. I believe the information I obtained was Accurate, but I now know the story is nothing more than an le- urban legend. 
This does not take away from the other facts represented in opposition to legalization or the good work of the Maryland Chiefs and Maryland Sheriff's Association. <laughs> so, so I don't know if that's the best way to, uh, to, to, to go forward with your anti-legalizing pot uh, message, but... I like that the, the core stat that I used to freak everybody out in the hearing, which was not only wrong, just completely embarrassingly wrong... That shouldn't detract from anything yeah. else I said. You know, some people, they just won't understand. They just won't understand. He said, Thank you for your message, but I don't understand. I just won't understand. Some of the arguments against the legalization and taxation of marijuana, both medical and recreational, have included we're going to see increases in crime if you legalize or decriminalize, and the increases in tax revenue that liberals love to talk about are not really going to be significant. We won't be able to do anything with that money. Colorado State has now released tax reports where they show what are the numbers, and we also have new crime reports. Lewis, before I read you the numbers, what's your prediction about what the actual numbers say in relation to the fear-mongering around uh, medical and recreational marijuana? Uh, the numbers are good. I don't know. That, that crime is down and that, uh, and that profits and, and revenues are up. Let's explore whether Lewis is right. Colorado state tax reports issued on May 8th show that $19 million worth of cannabis was legally sold in Colorado in the state of March, up almost a third from February. The state reported $7.3 million in retail marijuana tax revenues, plus about another $12.6 million from taxes on medical cannabis. Last week, what are they doing with that money? Last week, state lawmakers moved to spend some of the proceeds, about $33 million, on school nurses and public education that touts responsible marijuana use. This is the European model, right? Legalization slash decriminalization plus money for education about drugs and also money for treatment of actual drug addiction. Let's explore the public safety issue. Crime. Property crime, violent crime. What happened? Well, as Lewis suggested, crime is down. Crime in Denver uh, declined slightly compared to the same three-month period a year ago. This is in spite of all of the doom-laden prognostications of opponents. However, property crime is down about 15% compared to the same period last year. Violent crime is down about 2.4%. The results coincide with PLOS-1 research, which finds that legalizing medical marijuana does not result in more violent crime. Now, a counter-argument that I've been seeing online from anti-decriminalization and legalization advocates is, well, if you, if you do something that makes having marijuana not a crime, of course crime goes down. You just have to look at the data. This isn't talking about drug crime. This is talking about property crime, and this is talking about violent crime. Property crime includes burglary, larceny, theft, 
motor vehicle theft, arson, etc. Violent crime is a crime where the offender uses or threatens to use violent force upon the victim. So this is measuring something that is separate from arrests for marijuana itself. Lewis, where do we stand with this? Well, this is the prediction we made, wasn't it? I think uh, this is good. I think the rest of the country is going to learn a lot from this. And it's just a matter of time, David. This is what it's going to be like everywhere. And I don't know how long, but in a relatively short amount of time. The next step is creating a bank that can be uh, where where these legal medical marijuana and recreational marijuana uh, dispensaries can have accounts, right? The big issue has been that the federal government still makes it illegal for banks to house any of the money if you're doing business in the drug trade. And the problem is that you have these uh, uh, dispensaries, Lewis, that have all cash, and they just have to convert cash to money orders in order to pay bills. Of course, when, when criminals know that there is that much cash on hand, that makes them targets. The real problem that might lead to more crime is because of regulations, dispensaries having all of this cash on hand. That's the biggest risk here. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious... I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman show at davidpakman.com. Governor Paul LePage of Maine uh, is extreme, and he's the guy who wants to send kids back to work. Um, miners, back to the mines! He says, well, you know, I delivered uh, newspapers as a boy, so why not have, uh, you know, kids as young as 12 head off to factories? Okay, that's one of a hundred examples I can give you of how extreme this guy is. Well, he's got a new one. Um, he's decided that if you're overdosing from heroin, well, why not let you die? Now, that's, come on, that's got to be in hyperbole, right? It's literal. Okay, so let me explain. First of all, in three years as governor, uh, LePage has been an excellent drug warrior. He cut funds to substance abuse treatment. Great, I mean, you wouldn't want to help those folks, right? He limited heroin replacement therapies like suboxone um, and sought to add f uh, 14 agents to the state's drug enforcement agency. So don't treat the problem at all, just you know, send more agents to arrest people and put them in jail. Yeah, God, I'm so tough. Uh, later in the story we'll tell you how effective this campaign has been. You're going to want to see that. Okay, now, what else has he done? Well, he's also vetoed different ideas for how they could help people not die on heroin. So, for example, a bill meant to provide legal immunity for health professionals administering naloxone uh, to those suffering from an overdose. So he vetoed that. So uh, that was supposed to say, hey, if you're a doctor and a guy comes in on overdosing on heroin, you can give this product that actually will make sure he doesn't die. He says, no, I'm not going to give you immunity for that. If you uh, give him that product, I might prosecute you for administering drugs. But the guy's going to die. He's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, this, 
in a country full of unbelievably extreme Republicans, he might take the cake. Here's another bill he vetoed. He, uh, it was a bill to create a Good Samaritan protections from prosecution for drug possession for people who call 911 when they suspect a companion has overdosed. Oh, you're going to call 911 to save your companion? No, no, no I'm going to prosecute you. Man. Okay. So now there's this drug called Narcan, and that's, you know, again, the thing that gets the overdose to stop so to say you can, you, so you can save their life. He, well, there was a, an idea to place the drug Narcan in the hands of police, firefighters, at-risk users, and their families. So if they're ODing, well, then the police, the firefighters, etc., would be able to use it so they don't die. Veto. I, they're not going to bring it up now because he says, I'm going to veto it, so don't even bother. Okay? Okay, so we'll see if it gets, you know, introduced and how far it goes, etc., but it's useless because he's going to stop it. Okay. Now, uh, his idea is, no, 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 but look, you got to understand, these druggy losers, if I let it, them not OD, then they're going to get the wrong message. But if you let them OD, they're going to get the message that they're dead. So what difference does it make, right? He says, no, 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 it'll increase drug consumption overall. Well, that's interesting because there was uh, recently research done by Carlo Wagner at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. And the research concluded that knowing more about the overdose treatment did not encourage drug users to use more. Instead, it appeared to do the opposite. More than half of those who went through the program actually reported decreased drug use at a follow-up interview Wagner study found. Now, uh, that would be facts, and facts are inconvenient things for Republicans, so we just ignore that. Oh, it reduced it? By the way, why did it reduce it? Think about it. Because they tell drug users all the different ways that they can OD. Then they get a little bit more reluctant to use the drug. It's not like th there's a drug user that's now going, oh, like a, man, <laughs> I'm not worried about ODing here. I'll just have, if a firefighter or a cop, an ambulance gets here in time, and he's not going to be busted by Governor LePage, he'll just administer this remedy to me and I'll get snapped back into life. That's not how they think. <laughs> They're just trying to get a high. I mean, that's so insanity to think that they... Look, I believe in incentives and disincentives. This is not a case where it applies where someone's making a rational decision, right? <laughs> by the way, in Massachusetts, luckily, they went in the other direction. In a town called Quincy... They decided that they were going to put naloxon uh, with the police, the firefighters, the medical professionals, they were going to give it to them. How many uh, lives did it save? 188. 188 overdoses in Quincy alone where they reversed it and they were able to save the guy's life. Okay? Now, you want to know who agrees with Governor LePage or used to? It's Governor Chris Christie, another Republican in New Jersey. He also uh, was going to do similar vetoes. You know who talked him out of it? And this is just a sad joke. John Bon Jovi. <laughs> now look, I'm glad John Bon Jovi did it, and his daughter had overdosed on heroin, and luckily she survived, right? And God bless him for doing it, right? But how goofy are these guys? They're like, yeah, oh yeah, screw him, let him die, who cares? Oh, my friend who's famous and a celebrity and a rock star from New Jersey says I shouldn't do it, well then I won't do it. And Chris Christie uh, said uh, when he reversed his decision, quote, we want you to save a life first. I would rather you didn't do it in the first place but I live in the real world. But you didn't live in the real world until John Bon Jovi corrected your ass. Okay, but apparently LePage does not real, uh, live in the real world, and he says, no, I don't want to save your life first. So, <laughs> either he thinks 
that before anyone does any drugs, they think, well, if I do that drug, it might lead to heroin, and if I do heroin, it might lead to me ODing, and if I OD, well, Governor LePage says he won't rescue me or have anyone else rescue me, well, I better not start it on, on drugs. Yeah, that's how it goes. Or he thinks, well, you know, if I OD and I die, well, I'll learn my lesson that I shouldn't have OD. Okay, yeah. Remember when the Republicans used to say that they were compassionate conservatives? Well, they don't say that much anymore. So finally, we get to the results in Maine. So obviously, with this crackdown on drugs, I mean, it's, look, it's tough love, but it's better for you, right? He's had great results, right? Fatal heroin overdoses in Maine quadrupled from 2011 to 2012. Nice work, Governor. The whole idea of harm reduction, this thing that we're talking about, is that you meet people where they're at without judgment. And that if somebody is using heroin, using crack, using both heroin and crack, mixing with pills, drinking a lot, whatever, whatever somebody's doing, you don't, you, you, you talk to them, you don't judge them, you offer services and, and products that make drug use safer also that make sex safer. And one of the things that I heard from, from talking to, to people who do harm reduction over and over and over again is that the idea that, especially that heroin users don't care about their health, is really preposterous. The, the very fact that, that heroin users will come and get clean needles right. from a mobile van is all the evidence that you need that they don't want to uh, share needles and, and either get HIV or contract hep C. And hep C is actually, it's a huge concern amongst mm-hmm. drug-using population right now because it's a more, it's a stronger or it's a, a sort of more robust virus and so it can live on needles and in cookers longer. So the, the there's a greater danger of contracting hep C um, from sharing some of the other paraphernalia that goes into preparing heroin as opposed to just sharing needles. So hep C is a huge, huge concern amongst uh, injection-using population right now. But a lot of people think that, that heroin users don't care about their own health, but that's just overwhelmingly not the case. And, and using, using clean needles, I think, is a, is a clear demonstration of that coming to so this this one van that was operated or that's operated by a group called Frosted um, that hands out needles and other uh, sort of paraphernalia that goes into preparing heroin uh, also hands out condoms, lube, uh, female condoms, and also of course offers numbers and referrals to detox and rehab. They also there is a, a medical van, a, a mobile medical unit that's a converted RV that um, sometimes goes out with the smaller Dodge van. And the, the mobile medical unit offers uh, offers medical care. You can get tested for, for HIV, for hep C. 
uh, you can sort of get a checkup. A lot of clients take them up on that offer. And also a lot of people that I've talked with sort of, it's, it shouldn't be surprising, but, but, uh, a lot of them, uh, told me, well, look, I used to do heroin and smoke crack and I couldn't do it. People thought, you know, one guy I talked to was like, I was a, I was a zombie. I couldn't, I couldn't maintain, I couldn't walk around. And he said, now I just use my heroin and I rarely smoke crack. And a lot of people don't know that I use heroin and, you know, Again, whether or not that's a good decision or a bad decision or healthy or not healthy is sort of not the point as much as it's the point to say in a way where a lot of college graduates or college students are like, I, I won't smoke weed when I'm drunk. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the exact same thing, but it, it's a similar way of thinking about drug use where right. you say, if I can't stop using one drug, how can I cut other things out to to mitigate the harm that I'm going to do to myself. And then in terms of if I'm going to continue to keep using alcohol or, you know, keep keep drinking, keep using heroin, whatever, what can you do to make sure that you're not driving, that mm-hmm. you're not sharing needles, that you're not taking Xanax, and uh, and that you're using, if, you're, if it's heroin, that you're using with people who have these shots of naloxone, this mm-hmm. anti-overdose drug that I spend a lot of time on uh, in the story. Right. And I don't know much about heroin at all, but obviously it's like if the person you're talking to is like, well, yes, I'm using, but I'm able to function and, and, you know, and live my life and like, you know, go to work. And like, you know, I think that there's such a kind of abstinence only mindset when it comes to drug use that, that kind of the hearing that like people having this ability to safely even though it is still an addiction, obviously, that people having the ability to do what they need to do to safely use and go about their life can can help them in a way that I think a lot of people who have the very the abstinent approach is very hard to, to wrap your mind around. Like, what do you mean it's less harmful to have people be able to continue to to to, to have access to needles and perhaps don't you know, don't quit cold, don't quit, but, but continue to use, but can improve their lives still is something that I think because there's such a abstinence, uh, kind of mindset behind the drug war. I think it is, uh, surprising to people to hear those types of narratives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I think that, that part of it too, is that whether or not somebody is able to, to, to use and, and hold down a job or not hold down a job is obviously important to them. But in terms of the work that harm reduction, the sort of harm reduction model is that if somebody's using heroin and is has either lost a job or is in danger of losing a job, the sort of coercive, in, in whatever way it is, coercive approach to rehab is not likely to be successful. Mm-hmm. And whether that's shaming somebody, whether that's involving the the criminal carceral system, Mm -hmm. it's not likely to be successful and it's likely to be very dehumanizing to the person. So when I talked with with this place in Vancouver, this safer or sometimes called supervised injection site, and everyone says safer, not safe, Mm -hmm. because as as one of the spokespeople for this injection site in Vancouver, because they're obviously illegal in the United States... And they're illegal 
elsewhere in Canada also. This is, there's only one supervised injection facility in North America. It's called Insight. And when I talked with somebody there, she said, look, all of our doctors here will tell you there's no safe way to inject drugs. Mm-hmm. It's not a safe thing to do. What you can do is mitigate the harm that you're doing to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's part of what comes in terms of not applying judgment mm-hmm. to it, of saying it's not about endorsing a behavior or like shaming somebody into stopping it, but it's just saying, what are you ready for now? Mm-hmm. And and as as one of the the you know workers that I talked with there, who who himself used for many many years, he said, you can't quit for anyone but yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. There were so many funny moments talking with him. I said, you know, how has your life changed since you stopped using? And he goes, oh, it's terrible. Got to you know, I mean, I got a family. I got to get a job. I got to pay taxes. Got to wait two weeks to get paid, and yeah, obviously he was joking around. But you know, he was like, "Look, if you say you're going to stop for your wife, for your mother, for whoever else, the minute you have a fight, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna go back out, and you're gonna find somebody." And he's like, "He's like, you're gonna go out, you're gonna say what's good, and then the next thing you know, the rehab didn't take." And so I think that that acknowledging that is is a a real kind of foundation mm-hmm. of the of the philosophy and saying that cutting down monthly use cutting down weekly use moving to uh to methadone programs moving from methadone to uh, a prescription pill called suboxone which is a sort of further way of tapering off those methods of of reducing the harm that you're doing to yourself on any given day or for any given month under not entirely self-guided because you're not out there on your own, but but on a on a scale that you're comfortable with and that you can do and that you can succeed at is just going to be better than you know putting somebody in like an intervention and you know shaming them with all their friends and family right. because that's just first of all that's just not how how our bodies work mm-hmm. and second of all I, I just you know I think that that a lot of the the data shows that these services don't increase. Right. Use. That's another that's another thing that you hear from from people who are like, well, we're condoning condoning use. At Insight, the the place in Vancouver, there was a, an academic study that said of one thousand sixty five injectors over a period, I'm not entirely sure how long, only one was a first time injection user. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about people who are going to this, this We're like, site. oh, great, a safe injection site. I'm going to start using heroin. I'm going to try heroin at this place. Right. That's not how this. That's not how Insight works. There's counseling before you can become a client or a participant in Insight. You have to go through counseling. You talk to, and the the, the people who who do the counseling are former drug users. Uh, they ask, you know, there's a detox program right upstairs. It's wrong to think about it like it's a a bar or a hookah lounge or something like that where right. you sort of like go and it's it's a bunch of like it's a fun time with people using heroin it's it's long term entrenched users who are going to either be using at insight or right. in a burger king bathroom and so so not only are their lives intrinsically valuable because they're human beings but there's this panic that all of a sudden a bunch of 15-year-olds are going to show up and, like, turn into crazed heroin addicts. It's right. just, it's none of it is based on, on empirical evidence. Right. But I'm 
Marked upon chunks of Edward Snowden's voluminous revelations about government spying on civilians has been the fact that the Drug Enforcement Administration, the federal police agency created to fight the war on drugs, has funneled illegal NSA surveillance to local police agencies around the country. New disclosures now allow us to see online the actual DEA training materials with which Drug Enforcement Administration agents are taught to coach local police departments across the country how to lie about their chains of evidence and sources, how to willfully violate the law, and cover their tracks in thousands or tens of thousands of cases every year to fill the cells of the U.S. prison state with drug defendants. This is not hype. This is not exaggeration. It's the literal truth. You can read the DEA's own manuals online at muckrock.org, spelled M-U-C-K-R-O-C-K dot org. Muckrock.org is a project funded by the Sunlight Foundation to assist journalists and citizens in the making and dissemination of the results of Freedom of Information Act requests from federal, state, and local governments. Thanks to one such recent request, you can now go to the muckrock.org site and view copies of the DEA's own training materials. These materials depict an amoral, out-of-control police regime, respecting no constitution and no laws. DEA agents are told that the evidence is unconstitutionally obtained and that this must be concealed from prosecutors, judges, and above all from the public some of which is under the quaint notion that there are laws even cops and prosecutors must obey. The manuals cynically spell out how DEA agents must coach local police departments to use what they know is illegally obtained information in order to construct false chains of evidence. This is not exaggeration. This is not hype. This is a smoking gun that depicts how the intelligence apparatus seamlessly blends with federal and local cops to prosecute the 40 years failed war on drugs, the greedy front end of the U.S. prison state. There have been plenty of African-American voices who have poo-pooed the significance of Edward Snowden and his revelations. Black TV talking heads like Joanne Reed and Melissa Harris Perry have called him a traitor and said he ought to be locked up. Congressional buffoons like Representative Jim Clyburn say he only did it to embarrass the black president, and others insist that his whistleblowing has nothing to do with black life as we live it. But chronic over-policing only happens to black and brown people, and chiefly the poorest of those. Black and brown people are the majority of drug defendants, charged with stiffer offenses and giving longer sentences than white drug defendants. Illegal surveillance turned into illegal evidence, backed up by an officially condoned web of lies 
about how that evidence was obtained have long been a crucial element in the unfolding of the prison state to enclose poor black and brown communities. If Edward Snowden hadn't told us the NSA was gathering this evidence and the DEA was using it, we'd never have known. So if Snowden is indeed a traitor, he betrayed the cops, not us. If he is a spy, he's spying for the people, not for the prison state, which is a big problem for some of our black misleadership class. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The state of Maryland is going green. And by green, I'm talking about, you know, uh, on, on Monday, the state Senate passed by a margin of 34 to 8, a bill that would decriminalize marijuana in the old line state. Now, this isn't the total Colorado-Washington state. Hey, it's cool. Uh, this just, you know, reduces it down to less of a penalty. But Governor Art O'Malley, who... Might be thinking of running for president in 2016 as a Democrat. He's the governor of Maryland. He says he's going to sign the bill. In fact, he said, he said, as a young prosecutor, I once thought, thought, excuse me, I once thought that decriminalizing the possession of marijuana might undermine the public will necessary to combat drug violence. I now think that it is an acknowledgement of the low priority that our courts, our prosecutors, our police, and the vast majority of citizens already attached to this transgression of public order and public health. So he's still calling it a transgression of public order and public health, but basically, like most Americans, he's changed his mind about pot. In fact, according to an October Gallup poll, a record number of Americans, 58%, now support full legalization of pot, whereas just 10 years ago, 64% opposed full legalization. And O'Malley isn't even going the whole full legalization route. He's just decriminalizing so these changing opinions have translated into changing laws. Once Governor O'Malley signs Maryland's decriminalization bill, the old line state will join the 24 other states that have either decriminalized marijuana, okayed it for medical use, or in the case of Colorado, Washington State, legalized it altogether. Our mayor here in Washington, D.C., last Friday, signed a decriminalization bill, taking it down to a $25 fine. I think Maryland's going to keep it at like $100 or something like that. But as Bob, as Bob Dylan once said, the times, they are changing. Of course, not everyone is okay with the sudden shift. Uh, just down the road from Maryland here in Washington, D.C., the head of the Department, uh, the, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, Michelle Leonhardt, or Leonhardt, 
uh, is fighting decriminalization tooth and nail. She's a Bush appointee, a leftover, and and I'm I continually scratch my head when I'm you know here we are six years into the Obama administration and he's still, still got Bush appointees, and she's one of the biggest supporters of Nixon's failed war on drugs. In fact, she's such a hardliner that when Congressman Jared Polis asked her a few uh, years ago whether pot, hang on just a second, sorry about that, whether pot was more or less dangerous than heroin or crack cocaine, she couldn't give an answer. And two years later, she's sticking to her guns, although she's um, changed her changed her story or rationale just a little bit. <clears throat> she told the House of Representatives last week that the wave of decriminalization laws sweeping the nation has not discouraged the DEA one bit. In fact, she says they just make the agency want to fight harder. Fight against what? Well, apparently, according to the head of the DEA, fight against the plague of stoned dogs that's sweeping the nation. No, seriously. After saying that she wanted to keep on fighting the good fight against stoners, like people, Leon Hart told Congress that she was worried about how lax marijuana policy was affecting America's pet population. I'm not making this up. Here's the absolute verbatim quote. Quote from the head of the DEA, Michelle Leonhardt, George Bush appointee. Quote, there was just an article last week, and it was on pets. It was about the unanticipated or unexpected consequences of marijuana legalization in Washington and Colorado, and how veterinarians now are seeing dogs come in, their pets come in, and being treated because they've been exposed to marijuana. Again, it goes back to the edibles. It goes back to products that are in the household that are now made for marijuana, and it's impacting pets. End of quote. Yep, that's right. The woman in charge of drug enforcement policy for the United States of America is worried that if we further legalize or de decriminalize pot, our dogs are going to get the spins. I mean, this is just embarrassing. It should be common knowledge by now that not only is marijuana not dangerous, it's actually way safer than alcohol. Alcohol, which is legal, kills about 40,000 people a year. Smoking marijuana has never killed anyone. Well, there was that guy a couple of weeks ago who fell off the roof of a house or something. That's, but, I mean, come on. You've never heard of a drunk falling off a roof? As we move closer and closer to legal marijuana, we need policymakers who actually understand what marijuana is and what its effects are. And frankly, in my opinion, who have smoked it at least once in their lives. I, you know, I have no idea why Obama left this woman in charge of the DEA after George W. Bush left office. But it is time for him to ask for her resignation. Those who write laws, they can recite them. And those of us who just fight laws, we live and die them. But I know they're never gonna tell you why, no They only wanna tell you lies, no Never ever gonna tell you why, no They only wanna tell you lies, no Never ever gonna tell you why, no They only wanna tell you lies, it's time, huh? 
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support the Smarter Sentencing Act. Every year, the United States imprisons millions and wastes our tax dollars in an attempt to fight a war that cannot be won. Most Americans are at least peripherally aware of this, but tend to ignore it as they go about their daily lives. Popular Resistance, a website born out of Occupy and designed as a hub for activism and organizing, is poised to make the futility of the drug war impossible to ignore. At their homepage, popularresistance.org, you'll find their campaign to make the end of the drug war a viral movement. Supported by the Sentencing Project and the Drug Policy Alliance, Popular Resistance has a video to engage your non-political friends and neighbors, as well as a petition to help push the bipartisan Smarter Sentencing Act, gaining support in Congress. As a recent article at the Daily Beast reported, the United Nations issued an 81-page report from, quote, the best and brightest minds in the economic drug policy world, unquote. The message those people who are far smarter and far better informed than us are sending to countries around the world? Enough with the drug war. From the petition at Popular Resistance, quote, Mandatory minimums help drive America's unsustainably large prison population of over 2.3 million people. The U.S. has only 5% of the world's population, yet holds 25% of its prisoners, many of them nonviolent, often serving longer sentences than those convicted of rape and murder. This is not only senseless and unjust, it wastes valuable resources that could better be spent by law enforcement to prevent violent crime. The time has come to pass bipartisan sentencing reform. I want to see my state and district lead, not follow on this issue. I support the Smarter Sentencing Act, a common-sense improvement to our criminal justice system, and as my representative, I trust you will too, unquote. So visit popularresistance.org, take the time to post the video, and take another 30 seconds to send the petition to your representatives in the legislature. This is another one of those hopefully increasingly common opportunities where liberals and libertarian types in Congress seem to be seeing eye to eye. If we push hard enough, especially in an election year, perhaps we can get them to bring their colleagues along for the ride and pass some sensible reforms. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage Interesting information has been released by the World Health Organization. They have found that 33, I'm sorry, 3.3 million people worldwide died of alcohol abuse in 2012 alone. And if you uh, take a look at how that breaks down, it's about one person every 10 seconds. So it's important to keep in mind that only half of the world's population drinks alcohol. And when you take that into consideration, uh, the average drinker consumes about 17 liters of um, pure alcohol a year. And if you consider all people in the, in the world, uh, 15 and older, that's 6.2 liters. But again, only half the population drinks alcohol, so it's really 17. Anyway, uh, that's disastrous, especially when you consider the fact that in most countries, like the United States, alcohol is deemed legal, but marijuana is illegal. So how many people die um, every 10 seconds from smoking too much marijuana? Zero. Oh, interesting fact. Very, okay. very surprising. Well, how about uh, for every 10 minutes from pot? 10 minutes, oh, it might be zero. Okay, all right, all right, but how about... 
How many people die from pot every 10 hours? Every 10 hours. Actually, that is zero. So the Last one, last yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. 10 days. Oh, that was, hold on. It was in my... Zero. Okay, so let me give you guys some interesting information. We covered this before, and I love bringing this up because it's so fascinating. It actually came from the DEA. So Judge Francis Young, who worked for the DEA at that time, wanted to see you know, how many people would die from marijuana overdose. And so here's what he found. In order to induce death, a marijuana smoker would have to consume 20,000 to 40,000 times as much marijuana as is contained in one marijuana cigarette. The National Institute on Drug Abuse Supply marijuana cigarettes weigh approximately 0.9 grams. All right, interesting. So a smoker would theoretically have to consume nearly 1,500 pounds of marijuana within about 15 minutes to induce a lethal response. I don't even think Tommy Chong could do that. So uh, isn't it fascinating? We just decreed something legal and we decreed the other thing illegal. And then for all these years, people have just been assuming, oh, marijuana has got to be incredibly dangerous. And and it's a substance one. It's classified in with yeah. heroin in terms of illegal, dangerous drugs. Whereas alcohol is totally fine, totally fine. But one person dies every 10 seconds from alcohol. That doesn't mean that alcohol should be illegal. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that marijuana is like this wonder drug. It cures everything and there's no downsides. But when you look at the downsides of alcohol and the downsides of marijuana, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, the fact that it's listed as a Schedule One drug is ridiculous. And, I mean, you look at the history of marijuana and why we uh, started criminalizing people for using it, it's because we wanted to get rid of immigrants. Let's keep it real. We didn't like Mexicans. Um, and I'm not saying we as in the Young Turks. I'm saying America. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. I love Mexicans. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Some of my best boyfriends are Mexican. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, we wanted to get them out of the country, so we started criminalizing it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, by the way, we made opium illegal because uh, we want to discriminate against Chinese. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. As if we needed another example of how the least informed and most out-of-touch people are now charged with bringing us news and information, <laughs> here's Joe Scarborough and his crew talking about the legalization of marijuana. I warn you, this clip is so bad that Mark Helprin is the hero. <laughs> okay, here we go. Talking about marijuana. Here we go. Right. I don't get but, it, man. But, I don't get. I don't, I don't get the legalization thing. I don't want to get too much into it. I mean, seriously, why? Just makes you dumb. 
pot just makes you dumb. I hung around a lot of See, guys that yeah. smoked a lot of pot. Thank and you. Never, Thank you for saying. Never once did I did I say, hey. Did you hear Jim Cramer? That was Jim Cramer. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> and Jim Jim Cramer's right. You know, finally, Joe Scarborough. Thank you, Joe Scarborough, for sticking your chin out and saying pop makes you dumb on national TV. Finally, somebody in the establishment is speaking out against pot. <laughs> and that's what makes Joe Scarborough such a maverick. He's not afraid to buck his conservative Republican base and take a courageous stand against pot. Uh -huh. It's called courage. right? You have to admit, it does take a lot of balls for him to publicly say exactly what everyone else in his party has been saying publicly for 50 years. <laughs> So here, so he keeps going. Joe Scarborough's got more to say. Here he goes. He he doesn't stop. Never once did I did I say, "Hey, man, I'll tell you what, that looks like something I want to do." Never smoked it because everybody that ever did just looked dumb as hell. Everybody who ever smoked pot looked dumb as hell to Joe Scarborough. You mean like you know like dummies like Louis Armstrong, <laughs> Paul McCartney, and. Bill Clinton, real morons, <laughs> idiots. You look at these guys and go, "What a dummy!" I bet they couldn't host a morning show and be wrong about everything. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I love how we live in a world where the guy making his stand, the host of the show, the uh, the uh, the opinion setter of the show, <laughs> says, "I've never done it." Yes, but here, but I am going to render my opinion on what it does to you. Right, I'll tell you exactly. It makes you dumb, and how do you know? Ah, uh, it's my sense. It's I, my strong sense. Because in high school, so here's Jim Cramer, and he thanks Joe Scarborough one more time for standing <laughs> up against pot. He's going to thank him more, and then he says a pretty much the least profound thing I've ever heard someone <laughs> say. And uh, and then guess what? Mark Helpern saves the day. So let's play. Here we go. Here we go. Thank you for, no, honestly, and by the way, I guess what, the battle is, look, here's why you don't do it, because you want to try to do well in life, and it's an impediment to doing well. That's Jim Cramer's profundity for the morning. Hey, look, here's the problem. Here's why you don't want to do pot, because you want to do well in life, and it's an impediment to doing well. I, I, I don't know if you've seen Jim Cramer's show, but I wonder if he's about to say, Cocaine, on the other hand. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not an impediment. So Mark Helper and then, so here, well, let, let's get a running start. Here we go. Because you want to try to do well in life, and it's an impediment to doing well. I mean, I, I, that's, does, does drinking make you dumb? <laughs> oh, so I'm, all right. So let's watch Jim Cramer's face when Mark Helper says this, okay? So let's watch his face again. Ready? Here we go. Here we go. Now watch it. doing well. I mean, I, I, that's, does, does drinking make you dumb? <laughs> he looks to Joe Scarborough. Joe, what do we say? <laughs> what do you say, Joe? What do, whatever you say, I'll say, Joe. Checkmate. Joe, what do, yeah, he's like, ah, I didn't think this went through, did I? <laughs> I didn't think. I never thought that anyone would bring up booze. I didn't see it. I just started talking off the top of my head again. I'm on the show by myself. Nobody calls me on anything. Oh, my God. Who thought Mark Helpert would say something like that? <laughs> I frick, okay, so here, so he says, says booze. And by the way, that's classic. Thank, thank you, thank you, Mark Helper. So here, and here it goes. Um, in large amounts. In I, I, I think in, I think in large amounts, yeah, it makes yes. you dumb. 
Did you, did you hear Jim Cramer? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Yes, in large amounts. In like, you, you're still right, Joe. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Again, thank you. Yes, in large amounts, it makes you dumb. So Joe Scarborough goes on. But, but, I, but I noticed over time, because, you know, I played music from the time I was 13, I did notice guys that would go out drinking on the weekends, which I didn't do either. Oh, so now here we go. So listen to this little anecdote he has. Okay, ready? I noticed guys that would go out drinking on the weekends, which I didn't do either. And I... He didn't drink in high school. He sounds like he was a blast. Tell, tell yeah. like He's the, the only musician who doesn't smoke pot or drink. I didn't uh, drink. I didn't smoke pot. In high school. But he knew I... guys who did go out and drink in high school. Well, I and never this... kissed a girl. I never... Uh... <laughs> So here, I didn't play sports. I uh, I didn't never had really. I never I had real fun. Didn't have but. friends. I didn't. No one came over to my house, and I didn't go to their house. <laughs> so here, okay, here we go. School, but they go drinking on the weekends, and you know by Saturday afternoon or Sunday, if they didn't wrap their tree around a car, they weren't. Oh, I don't like that Monday morning. What is he talking what about? What story is this? How many, did he like lose seven friends who drove into trees because they were drunk? If they, in high school, they were, they would go out drinking, which I didn't do, and then, uh, on, on Saturday afternoon or Sunday, if they didn't wrap their they car around a tree. They didn't die. If they didn't die. I'd see him on Monday morning going, uh, uh. So I would, I think it's weird that Joe Scarborough would switch from demonizing pot with a fake anecdotal evidence to demonizing alcohol with fake anecdotal <laughs> evidence. So here, uh, so he keeps going. He's not done. He's not done. I played with a lot of guys in bands and on football teams that smoked pot all the time, and they're, you know. And you see, he he put his head down. They're he nodding goes, off, and they're like this. They're like this all the time. The guys on pot would every once in a while have a silent moment of prayer. What are you talking about? <laughs> he would have loved that. He got, he played football with the guys who smoked pot, and here's what. So here he gets even worse. Here he goes. Ready? I coach. By the way, little known fact: I coached football after college, and I would walk out. I would walk out, you know, with my players, and I'd see some guys walking like this. I'd tap them on the head, and I'd say, "Hey, you know what? I'm not going to tell the sisters, but if you come out again, stoned." First of all, he can tell that a football player is stoned because they're walking like this. What you can tell someone's high by sight, Joe? Yeah. By looking? That is. Again, making it up, yeah. making it up as he goes. I would see some of the football players and guess and listen to what he says. By the way, so listen to what he says. He thinks this would be a good story to impress people. This is and tell the sisters. But if you come out again, stoned, my football practice, I'm going to get you thrown in jail. He's going to get jail? you thrown in jail. Jail, jail for smoking. And by for the way, smoking pot. And no one's going to ask a follow-up, like, well, did anyone ever get stoned the second time? Yeah. Did you throw anybody in jail? So that's him being a... That's his Bill O'Reilly moment, that pretend I'm a tough guy when right. I'm not a tough guy. But that's what that is. Wouldn't it be great if anyone ever followed those things up, though? <laughs> yes, it would Did be. it happen? Did you get anyone in jail? How did that go? <laughs> Were they prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law? Like, who'd you tell? How did they prove the case? My coach is trying to get me thrown in jail for smoking pot. What a great camaraderie builder yeah. that must be. Yeah, they must have loved playing for Coach Joe. Yeah, coach, yeah if, uh, he's going to throw me in jail. <laughs> Usually the coach bails you out of jail. Right. This guy, he goes to you know, Joe Scarborough, does his uh, best asshole. So excessive alcohol consumption, by the way. So he's demonizing pot. Alcohol consumption is the third leading cause of preventable, de preventable death in the United States, right after tobacco. Mm -hmm. Okay, Alcohol abuse kills 75,000 Americans every year, half of them from liver cancer, the other half from car crashes and mishaps due to alcohol use. So that's a lot of people dying. It's a lot of people dying. Right. So... I'm sure. So here's so here they brought on Sam, uh, the founder of Sam Adams, Jim Cook, mm -hmm. Sam Adams Beer, was on Morning Joe. 
And, you know, given Joe's track record on drugs and hating drugs that are destructive, and we also, I bet Joe's going to give it to him for peddling a drug that sickens and kills so many people. Sure. What? Let's, let's watch how they give it to him. Ready? Here we go. Jim Cook, oh, this is big. founder of the Boston Beer Company and brewer of Sam Adams Beer, and he brought um, an empress. Jim, I, I hope, <laughs> let's look at this thing. I hope there are not Encyclopedia Britannicas inside of there. So I he's got they're... a little mini cooler with him, and Joe goes, I hope there aren't books in there. Exactly. And what is in there? Bottles of beer and glasses. And he starts taking them out. Here we go. Oh, good. Wow. Oh, look. There. Look at that. Oh, you know, Willie, we are finding on this show brewing together. Yes, we are yes. right now. Yeah, anything so, that's brewed is good. What is this? <laughs> ah, drugs are great. Anything that's brewed, it's brewed. Oh, we got drugs. We're going to start drinking at 6 in the morning. Well, <laughs> nothing alcoholic about that. Nothing, for, no problem. In fact, it's all this worship of alcohol. They're worshiping it, right? So it goes on. And, and good for you. What you and good for, for you, he just said. What are you pouring for us here? What's that? Well, this is my original beer, Samuel Adams Boston Lager. It's what I started brewing in my kitchen 28 years ago. And Can I just say, if you're not going to drink it, pass it around. Wow. <laughs> wow, it's weird, because I thought he was going to get his ass handed to him by that teetotaling Joe Scarborough. And what do you know? He brought a cooler, starts passing beers to everyone, and everyone starts drinking them alive on television at 6 in the morning and they talk about how great beer is and they later on they laugh about Mika's husband being obsessed with beer huh. you know I bet you know knowing Joe Scarborough I bet when he realizes how comically inconsistent and hypocritical he's being that it will really bother him <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what do you say Joe pot just makes you dumb Hi, Jay. This is Jay from New York. Regarding the veterans' hospitals, you have to give the veterans' hospitals credit. They've kept their inability to capably treat all veterans a secret for years now. But once the veterans get into the hospital, I am told by my brother, a Vietnam veteran, the VA hospitals are very good, but the trick is to get into them. The waiting time for veterans is far too long and deadly. Certainly, the administrators of VA hospitals were afraid they'd lose their jobs if they told the truth and created a fuss. But managers are always subject to this pressure. Don't let anybody know we're inadequate. See General Motors, for example. The real problem, unquestionably, is that we don't have enough doctors, nurses, hospitals, or medical offices to treat veterans. We don't want to spend the money. Here in New York, we have these very efficient local medical offices, offices sprouting up all over the place. They are sponsored by local hospitals, and they seem to do a pretty good job. This is what we need about 2,000 of all over the country for veterans. I'm sure that we probably need another 100 major VA hospitals also, but these little medical clinics do wonders. And I suggest that many veterans could get appropriate care in these places. I would think that many of them don't really need hospitals, but just genuine medical care and supervision. So tell the Tea Party and the conservatives and all of us, then we need about $100 billion for this right now. 
So just cough it up. There's no way around this one. In the meantime, Congress and President Obama must pass whatever bills are needed to immediately allow veterans to go to any hospital in the United States and have the bills sent to Washington. Of course, there will be some fraud, but we have, we have, but we have put ourselves in this position through enormous and sinful neglect of our veterans, the people who fight the wars we often simply dream up. This bill should be in place before sundown. Thanks, Shay. Love your show. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, uh, calling about the, the death penalty episode. And I think that the basic idea that the state should not use violence except in the direct defense and the direct act of protecting people is really the principle for me that, that, should, that makes the, the death penalty not work. If the person's already detained, uh, it's like if somebody breaks into my house and I point my gun at them and I say, you know, stop, and they stop and they run out the door. If I chase them, then, you know, or, or, or if they've already, if they're already subdued and then I go ahead and shoot them anyway, that's revenge, that's, you know, that's unlawful. The same thing is that, you know, if you got somebody who's drunk and they're waving a gun at school children and so forth, you do what you got to do, but once you've got that person subdued, you've taken away their gun, they're in handcuffs, uh, they're in a jail cell, whatever, there's really no excuse for using deadly force against them, even for the state. It, it's the, the only excuse would be if this person were trying to escape from incarceration, you may make a case that you, we're defending the state if, you know, as a last resort, uh, we go ahead and, you know, shoot that person or whatever because we can't detain them without deadly force. But, but really it's, it's more of an extension of here's what we expect of each other as individual citizens. When you use deadly force to protect yourself and those around you, you're not allowed to use it once the threat is gone. And we, we only want to just barely expand that for the state that they can prevent the escape of a dangerous person. And that's about it. But once you have them in a jail cell, there's no excuse to then perpetrate violence against them. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Bye. I have one more message for you from Rosa in Denver. Unfortunately, the first 30 seconds or so were really garbled, but I basically got what she was saying. So I'll just tell you that she's responding to two episodes, one on racism and the second on the death penalty. And so she refers to how in the racism episode, there was talk about how racism was codified into the Constitution. And then in the second episode of the de- about the death penalty, there was a lot of talk about the Eighth Amendment and the ban on cruel and unusual punishment. And then she basically picks up from there. You know, in that second episode, in the talking about the death penalty, people seem to have the idea that the Eighth Amendment is the thing that's going to stop the injustice. Like, we have this thing that has no cruel and unusual punishment, so we can't be doing these things. I just want to get the perspective or think about the idea that the Eighth Amendment doesn't actually, isn't a good thing, doesn't do that. And in fact, you could talk about it in the uh, perspective of the first episode and say that it, in fact, codifies racism is, is another example of racism being codified into the Constitution. And what I mean by that is the words, is thinking about the words and unusual. So the founding fathers were saying, 
cruelty is okay as long as it's not unusual cruelty. So you can punish someone and do it really cruel. You can whip them. I mean, that was a acceptable form of punishment back in the day, and it was still acceptable after the Constitution was ratified because it wasn't unusual. So, the, you know, going back to racism, you know, and not about you can them because it's cruel, but you can punish them in, the, in a horrible manner because it's cruel. But nobody ever said that argument because you can't make that argument because cruelty is okay in the Constitution as long as it's not unusual. So going back to the death penalty, I mean, that's why we've never been able to use the Eighth Amendment as a way to get rid of the death penalty because the death penalty is not unusual. It may be cruel, but it's not unusual. And so that um, perspective really makes me worry about the current situation with um, these portraying guys as we execute them because it's already happening, you know, it's happened two, three, you know, five times, uh, I don't know, you know, where they're doing these compounding these things in secret and just saying, you know, the more times it happens, it's going to become usual. So then the whole argument becomes, well, it's okay because, look, we've been doing it for a while. Cruelty is not a big deal as long as we're okay with it, as long as it's a kind that we're comfortable with. So if we make this not unusual, that's going to be a problem. So we need to fix the Eighth Amendment, I think. Let's uh, redraft the Eighth Amendment, take out the words, and unusual. And just say that we are against cruelty. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, every once in a while, I also like to thank people who have been talking about us on Twitter, Facebook, anywhere they like. And so I've got a few people to thank today. At uh, Perspectives on Twitter. Apparently, we don't usually agree. Uh, they said, listening to at Best of the Left, I hate when I agree with them, but I have to say that the way we execute in the U.S. makes me very uncomfortable. So, yeah, I, I don't know what perspective they are usually coming from, but we usually don't agree, apparently. Uh, but it's nice to hear that we agree on that one. And, uh, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So thanks for that mention. Uh, say that again. Uh, just use the quick and easy uh, feature in, in the Stitcher app to mention that he'd been uh, listening to the show, so appreciate that. And at Nate Heavens said, uh, next is best of left. Every three days, great stuff from the real left is highlighted in themed podcasts, brilliant stuff and informative. I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, so huge thanks to uh, you know all you know those three and anyone else talking about the show. You know, if you like the show and you want to help spread the word, it's not that hard. There are a lot of ways to do it, and, and it really helps uh, you know, get more people to tune in. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside 
inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories